Welcome to the Brookings Cafeteria, the podcast about ideas and the experts who have them. I'm Fred Dews. The 2016 Summer Olympics in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil, are the only games held in any South American country. When the site was chosen in 2009, Brazilians celebrated and looked forward to economic development and advancement of Brazil as a major player on the world stage. However, while the sporting contests themselves were full of their typical excitement, corruption scandals reduced profits and local governments were driven into bankruptcy. Over 70,000 of Rio's poorest residents were forced to move. Hosting the Games cost Brazil $20 billion. In this episode, my colleague Bill Finan, director of the Brookings Institution Press, talks by phone with two of the contributors to a new edited book from the Brookings Press titled Rio 2016, Olympic Myths, Hard Realities, that is about the social, political, and economic costs of hosting the 2016 Summer Olympics. Juliana Barbasa is a journalist born in and now based in Brazil. She's the author of Dancing with the Devil in the City of God, Rio de Janeiro on the Brink. And Teresa Williamson is a city planner and executive director of Catalytic Communities, a Rio de Janeiro-based organization that provides media and networking support to favela communities. In 2015, I had the opportunity to interview the editor of Rio 2016, Andrew Zimbalist, about his Brookings Press book titled Circus Maximus, the economic gamble behind hosting the Olympics and the World Cup. Stay tuned after the interview to hear from David Wessel in his monthly economic update, and also a new Ask an Expert piece in which our questioner inquires about democratic norms and the Trump presidency. And now, here's Bill. Thanks, Fred, and hello, Juliana and Teresa. Hi. Hi. The Rio 2016 Olympics have become infamous with the main memories, at least for me and I think for many other people, not of incredible records set by athletes, but instead of bacteria-infested waters, a sign held up a few weeks before the Olympic visitors themselves were arriving at the Rio airport by disgruntled firefighters and police officers that said, welcome to hell. It wasn't a very auspicious beginning or auspicious, <laughs> auspicious surroundings themselves. So my main question to begin with is what went wrong? If you could capture the essence in a couple of sentences, what would each of you say? Well, you know, Rio is one of the most unequal cities in the world. It's famous for its beautiful beaches and so on, but it's also famous for its very visible inequality. And, you know, when the investments came into the city, they were essentially misappropriated towards things that only exacerbated that inequality. Mm -hmm. And so the natural consequence of that is that the groups that have been marginalized historically would feel even more disgruntled at the end of the process. And then, of course, on top of that, we had an economic recession by the end, and all of that adds up to what we experienced, the failure of the Olympic Games in terms of leaving a real legacy for the city. Mm-hmm. I would agree very much with what Teresa said. I feel like the Rio Olympics turned grossly unequal city into a more unequal city. And I think that part of what happened there was the confluence of Rio and Brazil-specific problems with IOC and MEGAVENT problems. IOC being the International Olympics Committee. Yes, exactly. You know, we had the inequality in Rio. We had the companies that were in charge of doing all of the Olympic-related construction and the politicians who were in charge of managing the process. And many of those players, the politicians and the companies, were already involved in a long-standing corruption scheme that's now been unveiled and that started before the Olympics Mm -hmm. and involved 
Brazil's oil company involved the big federal construction projects that were going on around the country. The Olympics simply slipped into this scheme and exacerbated it. Uh So on the one hand, it funneled more money into the hands of the usual winners in this process in Brazil. And on the other, it built a physical infrastructure that actively made the city more unequal by serving some over others. So there was that. Those are the Brazil and Rio-specific problems. And Mm -hmm. on the other hand, you have IOC related problems. I mean, this is a global monopoly that has no accountability instruments to hold it to task. And so it moves around the world doing this. We can look at previous Olympics, as other authors did in this book, and see examples of it. So I, unfortunately, I have to say there was no surprise for me in what happened in Rio. So, Julianne, I want to stick with you for a moment because in your chapter on the book, which you can call the roller coaster of the Rio Olympics, I want to back up the roller coaster a little bit to the beginning before this dismal scenario that you've painted of where things were when the Olympics came into place. But on October 2009, when it was announced that Rio would host the 2016 Olympics, it was a different picture at the moment. It was... I think, as you mentioned in your book, too, it's as if the curse of the past that Brazil is a country of the future and always will be had been lifted. It was a shining moment. Can you describe that moment? Or is that overwrought to call it shining even? No, absolutely. I mean, I'm Brazilian myself, and this is the moment that I decided to go back home mm-hmm. because I wanted to be there for this moment as a journalist and as somebody who cares for Brazil and cares for Rio. This was a moment when the economy was growing, that inequality that we've spoken of was diminishing measurably. There was money coming in from a commodities boom and more money prospectively coming in in the future from this oil discovery off the coast of Rio. All this cash at a time when we also had a working class president who represented a segment of the population that had been underrepresented in the past and that, meant that, that, that I'm there sorry, was an and, opportunity. And it was Lula da Silva? Exactly. This was President Lula, yeah, Brazil's first working-class president that essentially brought the face of a segment of the population in Brazil that had never been represented in politics to Brasilia, to the capital. So you had the money and the political will, the political moment to make significant transformations in Brazilian society that would have made it a more equal place a place where we're more benefited from the bounty that Brazil really has. Mm -hmm. And so, yes, it was a shining moment. It was a very exciting moment. In some cases, there was some euphoria because there's only so much change that you can make in a period of one presidential term or two or even three. But the opportunity was very much there. And the bid for the Olympics was very, very much used, hooked into that. If you'll remember, President Lula said things like, it's our turn, our time mm-hmm. has come, this is Brazil's moment to shine, and it seemed the IOC really bought that. And there was a moment when Brazil was the leading initial in BRICS, of those leading countries that were going to lead the world economy. Absolutely, yeah. I was just going to say the excitement was not just within Brazil, the excitement was outside Brazil as well, and uh, foreign direct investment was booming. A lot of people were looking to Brazil as the next big thing. And then the Silva left office and Dilma Rousseff was elected president in 2011. And then it seemed that things started to spiral downward and relatively quickly, too. Indeed. One of the key elements that changed between that 2009 euphoric moment and Dilma's impeachment was the economy. 
And I feel like that was actually a huge factor in her impeachment, much more than anything she did or didn't do. Brazilians are very unforgiving of that moment when the economy goes south. People, you know, my age who lived through the 80s and the early 90s remember hyperinflation. So for global factors, largely, that had nothing to do with Brazil specifically. For example, commodities prices went down. Mm -hmm. The price of oil specifically went down. There was this uncovering of this massive corruption scandal that distracted politicians from doing the things that we elect and pay them to do, which is, you know, govern and take care of the economy. And the corruption scandal also hit Petrobras, the oil company, very strongly. So this company that was supposed to be tapping into those oil reserves and bringing in all of this cash for investment in social programs and other programs, this company was completely unable to function because it was dealing with this uncovering of a huge corruption scheme operating within it. And so you add all of this together, and Brazilians were really starting to feel the pinch at home. Um, People were losing jobs. The inflation went up a little bit. A lot of those possibilities that had seemed within reach were now suddenly being pulled away from them. So the mood really, really turned. And as that mood turned, Brazilians looked to where their government was spending money and time and effort, and they saw these massive stadiums and venues that would have no uh, use after the games and that were costing the public a tremendous amount of money. There had been a promise at the beginning that this wouldn't happen. So they started to really question the whole enterprise. We saw the beginnings of that questioning in 2013 during the Confederations Cup when Brazilians took to the streets and massive nationwide protests. This unhappiness lasted through the beginning of the World Cup surprisingly, because Brazilians are generally the world's number one soccer fan. And this discontent continued strongly through the beginning of the Olympics in 2016, when, as the games were about to start, one in two Brazilians thought it was a bad idea to have the Olympics in Rio, and two out of three thought that this would only bring negative consequences to the city. Teresa, I want to turn to you for a moment to talk about the chapter in your book, which is about citizens reacting and acting with the impact of the Olympics. And you specifically focus on the favelas or one specific favela. But before we go to that, can you tell listeners what a favela is and a little of the history behind them, especially in Rio? Sure. Well, Rio's favelas are 120 years old. In fact, the oldest favela is turning 120 next month. It's called Providencia today. The community was formed when Former soldiers were promised land in the capital of Rio at the time, and they came back in 1897 and didn't find that land available from the government, kind of very typical promise made by the government that wasn't met. And so they squatted on a hillside and started a community. They called it Favela Hill, named after a shrubby plant named Favela from Mm. the northeast of Brazil, where they had served battle. But then over time, other communities formed informal settlements around Rio in response to the lack of housing, and they were all called favelas. And that community eventually changed its name, but the word stuck. And so in Brazil in general, but especially in Rio, informal settlements are known as favelas. Mm -hmm. And because of a history of government neglect and lack of effective service provision, because All favelas today do have some level of public services, you know, water reaches the edges of the community and so they bring it in and the homes individually have plumbing, you know, there's electricity in all the homes for the most part, although 
They may go a day, a week, or two days sometimes where it gets shut off. Same thing with water. And so services exist. There will be clinics in some. There will be schools attending to the students of these communities, even though they may not be within the community. But the quality is precariously low to this day, maintaining these communities in a state of neglect. But residents continue. So you can imagine over 120 years, uh, that would be many generations at this point of people building, rebuilding, improving. And so favelas are characterized, I think, for me at their core by this constant effort on the part of residents to improve their outcomes with lack of outside support. They've been able to develop quite a bit over this period. You know, over 90% of homes are brick, concrete, reinforced steel. They're no longer shanties. Mm -hmm. The conditions are no longer, for the most part, what we normally consider slum conditions. Unfortunately, the translation problem makes it difficult, and so often the media still translate them as slums, which does them a disservice. Right. One of the things I took away from your chapter is that that perception, as you put it, of them being inherently illegal, criminal, precarious, and unmanageable was the wrong perception to have, that that... 2002 movie, City of God, which burned that image into many people's minds. That's not the favelas that you know and that populate most of Brazil. Yeah. In Rio, depending on the period, 35 to 50 percent of favelas in the city have drug trafficking activity. So it's not even normally a majority of communities. And even in communities with drug trafficking, very rarely do more than one or two percent of residents are involved directly in drug trafficking. So it really does paint those movies like that and the news in general, which tends to concentrate on moments of sensationalist kind of violence, sensational violence. Those paint a picture of these communities as inherently violent, which isn't true. The reason there's so much violence in so many of these communities is because they've been kept neglected by the government, which makes them easy targets for criminal activity. There's a lot of institutionalized racism in Brazil and Mm. criminalization of poverty, which makes it harder for favela residents to get jobs. So it also means that there's going to be a workforce potentially for these factions, these drug factions. And education is kept precariously of low quality. And so that also makes it harder for people to access good paying jobs. So for several reasons, these communities end up targeted by criminal gangs, which take advantage of them in that state of neglect. But it's not something inherent to the favelas themselves, their built environment, their residents, or their history that makes them criminal. Your chapter focuses on one favela in particular, Villa Autodromo, which Rio's mayor targeted in his own way to be removed for the Olympic Games because it was too close to one of the stadiums. Your chapter is this fascinating description of people coming together and fighting literally City Hall, and in the end, not winning, but also there's a strength that comes out of that and that loss, I think. But what would removal have meant, and this consensual relocation, as he called it, what would it have meant? And can you just describe briefly just the story of Villa Autodromo? Yeah, so Villa Autodromo is a community. It's been around over 40 years. It started with fishermen near the lagoon, which ended up being next to the main Olympic Park in Rio. And so they actually had resisted previous attempts at eviction in the 1990s. They had been given 99-year leases by the state government. They had as strong land rights, housing rights, squatters rights as exist in Brazil. And they really loved their community. One thing that always was clear to me whenever I interviewed residents there was how they were there by choice. It was a community comprised of people who had moved often from other favelas, but had found this oasis of tranquility in Rio 
by the lagoon and they'd moved there. So people there did not want to move. It was a very small percentage of residents who were living in more precarious dwellings, less than 10%, that were interested in, mm -hmm. in a different option. And so what happened was when the Olympic decision was announced, the residents who had already organized against eviction in the 90s and beyond, they reorganized and they brought forward the resources they knew about, the public defenders, and started networking with other organizations, community organizations, universities, and so on, to resist. Meanwhile, the city was adamant about removing this particular community. There's a long-standing desire on the part of that particular mayor to remove that particular favela because he was sub-mayor for that region of Rio. Previously, he already knew that community, and he had tried to evict it in different positions. Mm -hmm. So they were familiar with him. He was familiar with them in that sense, but he never set foot in the community during the entire pre-Olympic period and instead made commitments to the real estate companies that were going to build the Olympic Park, or so is the assumption, because there's nothing explicit, but it's obvious in the sense to everybody involved in the struggle from all sides. He knew which political constituency was his. and uh, Exactly. To, yeah. He's always been very much involved with the real estate interests in the city. They were the ones who funded his political campaigns and so on. And so he targeted the community, yet the community resisted. And you know, in the chapter, I tell this whole story of how it unfolds and all the interests and the role of different community organizers and the media and the public defenders and the legal disputes. And as it unfolded, essentially, to summarize, the city government found out exactly who those 10 percent of residents or so were that were willing to negotiate, and they targeted them very explicitly with public housing offers nearby, which they took because those were the people living in more, like I said, precarious dwellings. Mm -hmm. And then from there, they created a sense of panic and inevitability that other residents felt they had to negotiate because it was a matter of, you know, time. And, you know, people with kids that were living in uncertainty, fear, you know, they would tend to go or families where there were maybe elderly residents owned the home, but their kids would pressure them, well, we could get several apartments so all of us could have our own unit. And so they might go because they think they're doing a good deal for their children. So there were a lot of people who, on the course of events, then the evangelical church left and then all of their faithful left. And so there were these waves of people who took different levels of negotiation. The city negotiated differently with everybody in a what we call a divide-and-conquer approach. They never met collectively with the community, which was the demand of the Residents Association from the beginning. Um, instead, they went door-to-door -door figuring out what was the minimum they could offer each family to get them to go. And in the end, the city spent over 300 million reais evicting this community between the public housing they built, the compensations they offered, and the rebuilding of the 20 homes wow. for the remaining residents at the end. And it would have only cost 14 million reais for them to upgrade or bring the entire community to standard where it was originally in its original blueprint. It was not a hard community to upgrade. There were only 11 roads. They were wide. It was quite a developed community. And obviously, it would have been much more cost-effective to no, keep obviously. residents there and, and much more humane. So now, actually, there's a court battle among over 100 of the families that were evicted that feel that in the process of these changing negotiations, they actually got a bad offer and they want more from the city. On the positive side, in Villa Autodromo, there were actually a number of successes for the community that 
made it into an international icon now of resistance. And these include the fact that they did resist to the end against these huge real estate interests in the IOC and the real government. There were 20 families that were able to stay on the land as they had hoped. They showed that resistance pays off. So other communities are now you know, much more likely to resist because they saw what those families were able to do when they did work till the end. The families that did get compensation, some of them got market rate compensations. It's the first time in Rio history where that's happened for favelas. And the public housing that was built for residents was built fairly nearby, which is also unique in this pre-Olympic period where mm. most evictees were sent one, two hours away from their homes. Okay. So there were lots of things where the community became a beacon of hope, essentially, or an example. And now it's become a center for organizing and people from all over the city, but also from around the world, come and visit the Autodromo to learn some of the strategies that they've employed. And they now have an evictions museum where they keep track of this history. Wow, an evictions museum. Yep. I wanted to get a sense of how many people in total were removed because you note in the chapter that the Villa Autodromo it was not the only community that suffered this forced eviction. So how many in total were forcibly removed from their homes? The bottom estimate is 77,000 people were evicted from their homes in the lead-up to the Olympics. Wow. And that's from official data. So there may well be more that are not registered. The overall, and they were all over the city. All over the city. It's yeah. sort of this form of eminent domain cleansing. <laughs> I wanted to pull back to look at the entire book. The overall argument of the book, Rio 2016, is that the Olympics are a net loss for a developing country. Can each of you describe for me what you think the net loss for Brazil was with the Rio 2016 Olympics? Juliana, do you want to begin? Sure. I've described this a little bit, but there's a loss on multiple levels. Mm -hmm. There's the obvious. There's the money that was spent, public money that was funneled into private pockets, either directly by public entities having to pay for things that private entities were not able to pay for or did not pay for, significantly subsidized government loans to these huge corporations that did a lot of this building. That's the cash that's directly spent. Mm -hmm. And then there's the opportunity cost. What did we not do with this money and with this political will, right? We had a moment in Rio when the municipal, the state, and the federal government were all working together to push these specific projects. What could we have done? in the city, in the country, if this kind of effort were directed at things that the population really needs and said specifically that they need in, mm -hmm. in so many protests over the past few years, things like hospitals and schools, you know, basic services, decent public transportation, better roads, things like that. And then there's, of course, the softer elements that are harder to quantify, things like what's the cost of embedding into the physical infrastructure of the city transportation routes that serve the wealthy and not the poor. When you change the physical face of a city like that, you remove entire communities, you build a more unequal city, we're going to live with the consequences of that for the next, what, 50, 60, 70 years, yeah, right? Yeah, so of, there's this, that cost. The dysfunctional urban planning, it sounds like. Exactly. Dysfunctional urban planning that intentionally benefits the ones who have usually benefited in Rio and not the ones who were ostensibly going to benefit from 
this moment of urban transformation. Mm-hmm. And then there are, again, even harder to quantify elements like Brazil's image. These mega events, the World Cup and certainly the Olympics, were supposed to be the cherry on the Sunday, you know, the moment when the right. world was going to look at Brazil and see Brazil being modern, efficient, shining, really showing the best that it has. You know, the, the motto was, you know, live your passion. You know, this is the thing that people think of when they think of Brazil and Brazilians. And instead, what are the images that are left in people's minds? That algae green swimming pool, the polluted bay, mm-hmm. the problems with lines and inefficiencies and security concerns. What damage does that do? Um, to Brazil and Brazilians and the exacerbation of corruption. What's the cost of that? You know, how do you even quantify that? Those are the headlines that are related to Brazil right now. And I have to say to the IOC as well, I think that Brazil's Olympics had a significant cost to the IOC because it was such a clear reminder of the negative impact that an event like this can have on a place. All of these descriptions that we've been giving you of how much the Olympics cost Rio, you have to keep in mind that the IOC made record revenues off of this Olympic Games. They made, I believe, $5.6 billion or something unheard of revenues off of the Games that cost a locality and its people and, so much. Yeah, so I, the I, costs are multiple. Andy Zimbalist, in either his introduction or conclusion, he's the editor of the book, said that by his estimate, the Rio Olympics ended up costing Brazil itself $20 billion, and the costs continue to rise. Teresa, I wanted to ask you, what did you think that net loss for Brazil was? Yeah, I mean, I think Juliana did a great job just summarizing everything. The only thing I would add from kind of a very local perspective is what it did to hope, you know? Hmm. I think... Everybody talks about how crime rates were coming down in Rio because the economy was going up, because the pacification police were being implemented. That was the shiny moment of 2009, 10, 11. But then they talk about the decline of the economy and the pacification police as kind of reasons for the increase in crime. And I really believe that we ignore the factor of hope and hopelessness in crime. Our organization works with favelas. We've been doing this work for 17 years, and we never saw people and community organizers more hopeful than that early period, 2009, 10, 11. Mm-hmm. It was palpable. Community organizers, especially young leaders, taking courses, night school, going to university, doing trainings to take advantage of this new moment. All these policies being introduced in favelas for the first time, essentially, in history on that scale in terms of infrastructure, potential upgrading, and the police itself, which initially seemed like it was being effective, all with the economy booming. And so we saw, you know, a crime go down naturally. I think when people are hopeful, they're less likely to take the kinds of risks that lead to getting involved in criminal activity. Now we feel a sense of hopelessness in the city. It's generalized. And I'm wow. not quite sure how we're going to recover from that. So I think, yeah. I think that's really key. However, there were some good things in terms of the visibility generated. Some of these are deep issues that were going to have to come up at some point. Pollution in the Bay, the racial underpinnings of mm-hmm. the inequality. These were issues that actually nobody talked about before the Olympic lead up, but they were brought out by the international media. And now they've become local issues people are really talking about regularly. And of course, those, you know, especially race, 
generate a lot of frustration as people become more and more aware of the role and the lack of action. But you have to be aware to do something. And so we're at the very beginning of a process, I think, of recognizing the racial history and legacy that have led to where we are today and that are related to all of this inequality uh, that we've been talking about. Juliana and Teresa, thank you so much for talking to us today about Rio 2016. It was an eye-opening conversation. Wonderful. Thanks so much for having us. You can find Rio 2016 on our website, brookings.edu. And now here's Senior Fellow David Wessel, Director of the Hutchins Center on Fiscal and Monetary Policy. I'm David Wessel, and this is my economic update. Like the tax code itself, tax reform is complicated, almost too complicated to understand in one bite. So I'm going to focus on one aspect of the tax reform debate. U.S. multinational corporations have more than $2.5 trillion in overseas profits that they're reluctant to bring home because they'd have to pay taxes on them if they were repatriated, as the word goes. The tax reform framework that President Trump and Republican leaders of Congress would change that. The U.S. taxes multinationals on their worldwide profits at a rate as high as 35 percent, minus what they've paid to foreign governments. But firms can defer taxes if they leave the money overseas. So many companies do that. And Congress has always flirted with the idea of, well, we'll let you bring the money home and we'll charge you a lower rate. And that would be a way to encourage companies to bring the money here. Now, there's a lot of misunderstanding about this. These companies, General Electric, Amazon, Pfizer, Microsoft, they don't stuff money into vaults in Zurich. In fact, much of it is invested in U.S. Treasury bills or other dollar-denominated securities or even deposited in U.S. banks. But they do leave it on the books of their overseas subsidiaries as long as they can. And that's what Congress is trying to change. The Trump-Republican framework would change the law so all past profits now parked overseas would be immediately taxed, but at a rate lower than the basic corporate tax rate. Then firms could use the money freely. Now, for companies, this is a tax cut. For the U.S. Treasury, it'd be a short-term windfall because it could collect taxes on all those $2.5 trillion overseas that taxes have been deferred. That's why it's so popular in Congress. It raises revenue in the near term that they can use to pay for other things. Now, President Trump says this change would, quote, spur billions of dollars in new investment in our struggling communities and throughout our nation. But that's only true if the companies are holding off on investing because they're low on cash or can't borrow. Now, the companies with the most profits in these overseas accounts are Apple, Microsoft, Google, Cisco, General Electric, and Pfizer companies that don't appear to be unable to invest for lack of funds. So what happens if this passes? Well, we've got a bit of history to draw on. In 2004, Congress passed a temporary tax break telling companies they could bring money home at a lower tax rate. There was a lot of talk about how this would increase investment and create jobs. Indeed, the law was called the American Jobs Creation Act. But research by Kristen Forbes, an MIT economist who actually was on the Bush Council of Economic Advisors, found that nearly all the money was used to pay higher dividends to shareholders or buy back stock. There was no significant increase in business investment, in hiring, or research and development. Essentially, the money moved from the bank accounts of the corporations to the bank accounts of the shareholders. Larry Summers, the former Treasury Secretary, 
describes this with a metaphor. A library with overdue books, he says, might sensibly decide to offer an amnesty from library fines, or it might decide to announce there would never be an amnesty, so people would save money by bringing in their books as soon as possible. But only a crazy librarian would put up a sign saying, no amnesty now, but thinking of one next month. Yet that's exactly what the U.S. has been doing. It's why companies have every reason to delay bringing profits home. Now, going forward, the plan is to end this repeated amnesty, tax multinationals not on their worldwide profits, but only on the profits earned in the U.S., with a twist designed to prevent them from escaping taxes altogether by booking profits in overseas tax havens. Essentially, it set a low minimum tax rate. It isn't specified in the framework, so the companies would have to pay at least some tax to some government somewhere. Of course, for any of this to happen, Congress has to actually pass a tax reform bill. And that's a real big lift. Listener Peter Dunphy sent in a question about democratic norms in the Trump presidency. I'm grateful to senior fellow Bill Galston for coming into the studio to offer his thoughts on the matter. Hi, Fred. My name is Peter Dunphy, and I'm a senior at Wesleyan University. My question concerns democratic norms in the Trump presidency. Whether it is Donald Trump's firing of FBI Director James Comey, Democrats going nuclear over the nomination of Neil Gorsuch, or the swift and secretive reconciliation process that ultimately led to the demise of the Republican repeal and replace bill in the Senate, Democratic norms or unwritten rules seem to be under full-blown assault. My question is, what is the role of Democratic norms in the Trump presidency and in the greater context of deep political polarization? And what options do policymakers have to preserve some semblance of these norms in order to maintain stable governance? Thanks. Peter, good question. Thanks for asking, and I wish more people were asking that question, including more young people. I'm Bill Galston, a senior fellow in governance studies at the Brookings Institution. The question of democratic norms is something that goes all the way back to the beginning of our republic. If you look at the father of our Constitution, James Madison, on the one hand, he was a strong believer in institutions, relying on institutions rather than on individual motivation to prevent bad things from happening and to create as many incentives as possible for good legislative outcomes that would serve the public interest. But he wasn't satisfied to rely completely on institutional devices, however artful. He also said in one of the Federalist Papers that Every political system relies on a certain amount of virtue in its citizens and leaders, and Republican political systems, systems that derive their legitimacy and authority from the people, do so to a greater extent than any other form of government. So you're quite right to suggest that in addition to laws and institutions, we do rely and must rely on unwritten informal norms. And we frequently recognize them only when they're being breached or when they're in the process of disappearing, because under those circumstances, the sorts of bad things that informal norms are there to prevent begin to happen. It begins to become obvious 
what we are losing. And we're clearly living in one of those times. Political polarization, which is intense not only intellectually but also emotionally, has put enormous pressure on the kinds of informal norms that used to shape the governance process in Washington and around the country. Norms of restraint in speech, norms that restrain majorities from pressing their advantages to the hilt, norms that counsel members of both political party to look to the long-term interest of their party in the country rather than the maximization of short-term gain. All of those norms have become much weaker in the past generation, and the weakening has been accelerated by recent political events, including the election of Mr. Trump to the presidency. The way forward, I think, is going to have to depend both on bottom-up processes, citizens protesting the disappearance of norms they cherish, and top-down processes in the form of political leaders in both political parties who are willing to take some risks in order to break the cycle of action and reaction and to create a new foundation for the kind of compromise that our political system relies upon. Our system of checks and balances, divided power and authority, unlike parliamentary systems, depends on the ability of people of different political persuasions to work together. There's an old-fashioned word for working together. It's called compromise. It's virtually disappeared. We need it to come back. We need a lot more of it. Thank you, Bill, for answering, and thank you, Peter, for taking part. I'll be sending you a Brookings coffee mug as a token of my appreciation. And that does it for this edition of the Brookings Cafeteria, brought to you by the Brookings Podcast Network. Follow us on Twitter at Policy Podcasts. My thanks to audio engineer and producer Gaston Reboredo, with assistance from Mark Holscher. Thanks to Brennan Hoban and Chris McKenna for production assistance. Bill Finan does the book interviews. Our interns are Pamela Berman and Julian Chung. Design and web support comes from Jessica Pavone, Eric Abalahin, and Rebecca Weiser. And finally, thanks to David Nassar for his support. You can subscribe to the Brookings Cafeteria on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get podcasts and listen to it in all the usual places. Visit us online at brookings.edu. Until next time, I'm Fred Dews. <laughs>